1988, my wife and I had moved here from California. I'd started working at Christ for the Nations, teaching, and was hired as the director of public relations there. It was a great season. Very early in that time, as Gina and I moved here from California, we knew we were moving to a place with lots of churches. And we had, you know how you do when you move to a new place. You just visit a lot of different churches. We were living in Arlington, was working at Christ for the Nations. We were commuting and just trying to figure out where God wants us to sit down because I've always been a church guy. I've always been part of a local church. Gene and I always felt strongly about that everywhere we've lived. So we were, we were just casting about. I was, I was an ordained Foursquare minister, and so we had a connection with our Foursquare family. And, and uh, Jerry Cook was a really influential guy in my life. Um, we had him in our church in California, and I got fairly well acquainted with him, and, and later Barbara, his wife. And uh, I still miss Jerry. Don't you? I mean, I, I still think about Jerry, and I miss him. I miss him. It's like David Wilkerson. I just... I miss that guy. And uh, so Jerry was teaching in a four-square meeting. He's out here somewhere. Um, one of those Salvation Army camps, I think. Something. And they had us all seated at different tables, and I just happened to sit down with this couple right here at a table. And we just began talking. And it was one of those moments where your hearts connect. doesn't take long, and your heart just connects. And I knew these guys were the kind of pastors that we'd been looking for. And I found out that they were pastoring over in Euless at the time. Tiny little work. They just started up on Pipeline Road. Also shared with Tongans. Because I remember they had a feast there one day, and they had a big hole dug out there, and they were cooking while we were leaving after our service. Small group of people, but we came in and we instantly knew our hearts connected there. And so we had a home church, and these were our pastors. I think we were actually charter members of, of the church out there. We were charter members. Hold that as an honor. And we've loved these guys all through the years. They are pastors, friends, confidants. Um, just people that bring life to you. And they have brought a lot of life to a lot of people. And we're so honored to have them today. But I ask Eric to bring the message today. And if you want to have Susan say something, you're just really open. You, you can just do that. We're just open. But I want you to come, Eric. And uh, I'm so glad to have you. I think, am I right, this is the first time you guys have been with us? in a teaching place since the 21 years. Wow, how did I miss you that time? Come on up, come on up here. Did you have a prophetic word? You know what I loved about Susan the first time I saw her in a service? Come on, step up. First time I saw her in a service was, you know what you did the first time we came to, was it called Grace Community when we were over on Pipeline? Yes, uh -huh. It was still called Grace Community? Okay. She was up on the front. I was, we were over there seated. And she kicked off her shoes during one of the songs and just started dancing right there on the front. <laughs> and I said, this is home. I loved it. I loved it. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful couple. Thank you, Lord, for their great hearts. They have given so much. Father, I thank you for keeping them all these years. 
Thank you, Lord, for raising Eric up from a very, very serious sideswipe of the devil last year. And uh, thank you, Father, for their light that keeps shining even in the toughest times of life. We appreciate them, Lord. I pray that we would value today and hold on to what they're saying because I believe you're going to say it to us. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. What an honor it is for us to be with you today. And I just want to say that when we go places, you just get a feeling and a knowing about a church by being with them in worship. And I just want to say what a special place this is. And I think you know that. I think you know that. But just the genuineness and the honesty and the... um, the word that comes to me is just fluidity, which to me would mean liberty. To just be able as a body to each one speak and prophesy and share what God is giving them. And I know that you know this is unique, but I just felt uh, like what I should say today is to really treasure that. Really treasure that. Uh, and to preserve that. Scripture says we're to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we're to work for that. And I know that you all have that, but to closely and preciously guard that. And especially in this season, as we are going through so many things that would try to draw our attentions away or cause us to focus on and even in the flesh a deal with different things that you preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and that this is a very rare precious jewel that God has given you this unity and this particular body that just shows his light I'm seeing like a jewel And the facets of that jewel are just a rainbow of color, and that is what you are. And I wanted to thank you for that and for the worship this morning that just ministered to me so deeply. And I thought, wow, I can worship with that and all the little glitches. And I mean, it was just the Lord, because the Lord is here and you are full of him. And so we can come and we can overcome. And worship that way, and I just want to thank you for that, and um, just say that I'm honored to be here, and so grateful, and that that's the word of the Lord to you, to preserve, treasure, guard, and really honor that that unity. Well, let's stand for a closing prayer. (laughs) I sure love my wife. Almost 48 years. It's about to happen. Hallelujah. They're clapping for you, baby doll. It's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. It is so wonderful to be with you, to be with Gary and Judy, and particularly on on this ordination day and these candidates and how significant that is. Uh, This is really kingdom business that we are about today. It's kingdom business that the world does not comprehend. Uh, But we're not concerned about that. We are only concerned with 
pleasing our Lord. And I also want to just say uh, that it is a, a deep, deep honor for me to be with and see Phil Demetro. And uh, Brother Phil, I love you. Uh, there is no one I esteem higher than you, Brother Demetro. Uh, you have had a significant role in my life and our ministry. And uh, when we were, I don't want to get all teary here, sorry. Um, when we were very young and really didn't know what we were doing and were trying to do church and, uh, and weren't doing so hot at it, this dear brother came and helped us set things in order. And from that moment on, the church prospered. And I'm not going to try to puff you up, Phil, but just let me puff you up for a minute, okay? <laughs> and say thank you for being so faithful to come. And some of you may have never had the experience of dealing with church life and about, about insecure ministers. I pray you haven't. But it does tend to be a characteristic often of ministers that they are territorial, uh, that they are, that they are myopic, they only care about their church and how it's doing and, uh, and miss the treasure of a kingdom mentality. And, uh, and if you get a revelation of a kingdom mentality, it sets you free from all of that stuff. And Phil Demetro has a kingdom mentality and he was, he was so happy to come and help our little church. He had nothing to gain from that except a crown in heaven. <laughs> and he did that. Randy, so good to see you, man. I love you. And it's been a long time since I've got to hug your neck. So um, if you happen to have received an outline, I encourage you to go ahead and get that um, out. Uh, one of the benefits of that is that you can kind of know when I'm almost done. Uh, I did say almost. And I want to direct your attention to my text in the third chapter of Exodus. Um, I hope you have your Bible or your phone somewhere because we're going to not only look at this text, but a few other passages in Scripture, and we'll refer back to this text a couple of times. Uh, my subject today is the call of God. And this is a message, obviously, that dovetails with ordination, but it is not simply a message for these three candidates. This is a message for all of us because here is my deep theological conviction. We are all called by God. Every one of us, no matter the age, no matter uh, your background, no matter your, your educational standing, it doesn't matter, any of that matters. If you are a living, breathing human being, then you are called by God. And sometimes in our religious notions, we've attached that only to vocational ministers. We need to be freed from that because uh, the world will never be won simply by vocational ministers. It's only won by the saints of God who are out there being the people of God in the midst of a, of a, a wicked and perverse generation as they shine as lights. Amen? So uh, if you will bear with me, I'm actually going to read... Uh, 15 verses here. I know that's against the rules. Probably Pastor Gary taught that somewhere when he was over at CFNI. Don't ever read that long because um, you're not supposed to. But here we're going to go. And this is a story you know, all right? This is Exodus 3 beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. 
So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold... The cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Holy Spirit, we welcome you as the teacher, because we have not come here to hear a man. We've come to hear from you, and we ask for your help in that, in Jesus' name. Amen. This, uh, this is clearly a story of the call of God on Moses' life. You might even be able to argue that this was his ordination service because his calling had happened some time before this. But as you know, it did not go so well for Moses in the early days of his ministry. And uh, he killed one of his first uh, uh, visitors at church. And, uh, uh, and he had to flee, and he went from there to the wilderness and began taking care of sheep for his father-in-law. Family business fraught with all kinds of details, Okay. Um, it did not go well, but now you have this encounter which radically changed Moses' life and changed the lives of the children of Israel and changed the course of history. Changed this book because he wrote five of those books. And so this is, a, this is beyond uh, our description to say how significant this encounter was that Moses had. I want to talk about the call of God and I'm going to draw out of this uh, uh, passage, uh, just what I feel like are some helpful insights. The first thing I want to talk about is the partnership of pursuit. The partnership of pursuit. This may fly in the face of your theology 
because your interpretation of John chapter 6 is that no one can come to me unless the Father draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. But I want to just expand that just a little bit and ask you, well, how do you think God draws you? Because in my view, there is actually a partnership between God and His child in this idea of pursuing each other. God pursues us, but the call of God includes that we also pursue God. And it happens together. There's a, there's a synergy that's happening of faith and trust where God puts His faith in us. Can you imagine such a thing? That He believes in us enough that He would invest His Holy Spirit into our lives, but then He asks us then to invest in Him and trust in Him, and then together a great work will be done. I, I just read this story and I see that Moses is just off in nowhere land. It's the boondocks. And, uh, and he had, there's no record that he's been talking to God for a long time. Dry as can be. Not just the wilderness, but dry of spirit. He just had lost all hope. There's no evidence that he was pursuing God at that time until this incident. And he's over there taking care of sheep, and then he sees this bush on fire, but it's not burning up. And you know, and and uh, and horticulturists say that in the desert there can be spontaneous combustion, and and bushes can catch on fire uh, without anybody using a lighter. Um, but but not when they don't burn up. And so Moses sees this thing going on, and um, even before he sees the bush, though, notice where he ends up. He's already at the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the bush happens, and it's sort of like the Lord going, Hey! And he said, I will now turn aside and see this. And I think he probably had a little bit more emotion in that. I want to see what this is about. I'm going to pursue after this, and out of that bush comes the angel of the Lord, embodied in that flame, speaking to him, and it's the voice of the Lord. There's something about that there is a pursuit of God of men, but there's also a pursuit of men of God. I'm using that in a non-gender sense, okay? Men and women. That, that both of those things are happening. And just, just for some, some uh, quick examples, uh, not only to happen, but I'm thinking about Samuel, nine years old, and, uh, and he hears the Lord, Samuel, Samuel, and he runs to the prophet and says, yeah, what do you want? The prophet says, I didn't call you, go back. And then the third time, of course, he says, it's the Lord, go back and listen. Okay, that's the Lord pursuing him, but isn't it interesting that Samuel ended up living in the prophet's house? So he was set up. Have you ever been set up by God? You look back and realize, oh, I didn't know what he was doing. But he put me exactly where I needed to be at that time, and then he spoke to my heart. Hallelujah. Um, I, think about, I think about Saul on the road to Damascus and he gets knocked off his horse and a bright light shines. And you'd say, well, there's one where Saul wasn't seeking the Lord. I'm going to argue with you about that. Because even Saul becoming Paul preaches later that God um, did not regard ignorance but in these times has called everyone to repentance. And there is this scripture that says, that was judgment of Israel, that says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Here's my conviction about that. I think that, that 
as we are living our lives, every step toward the Lord is a good step. Even if you don't have full revelation. By the way, anybody here have full revelation? Um, okay, no. None of us. We're in, we're in uh, a work in progress, right? So we are discovering it, but, but God had set Saul up so that he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew the Scriptures. He was being set up until the time that when he did get knocked off the horse, he discovered the Lord. Okay? Just, just think about how this has happened so many times. You remember the time when Philip went and, and found Nathaniel and said, we have found the Messiah? And Nathaniel said, you've got to be kidding. Uh, that's not going to happen. Oh yeah, it was because God had already seen him under the tree. You remember that? So there was a partnership, a synergy. I want you to get that picture because if you do not understand that there is a partnership between God pursuing you and you likewise pursuing God, you'll miss out on the significance of the call of God. This is what God wants to do. Um, for time's sake, I'm zooming through this. Honestly, my wife knows I could make this go twice as long. And aren't you glad for the new mercies of the Lord every morning? So that's not going to happen. I will reference James 4.8 though, where James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. It's a partnership of pursuit. Hallelujah. The second thing I notice is the personal nature of His calling. The personal nature of His calling. When God looks out over His creation, setting time and space beside and looking over the entire history of creation, do you understand that He does not see a, a mob of faceless humans, but He sees everyone individually. He knows us. He saw us when we were yet in our mother's womb. He he purposed a plan for our lives before we ever thought of Him. And then He comes to us like He did to Moses and says, Moses, Moses. I don't know if you've ever felt like Moses, so bear with me in a little poetic license here just to imagine what it was like for Moses to have been raised in the palace of a king, to have had anything his heart desires to be the elite of the elite, the creme de la creme. This is Moses. He had everything going for him until that terrible day when he killed the Egyptian. And then the next day, one of his brothers said, we saw what you did. And Moses fled and he left all of that behind. He left his prestige. He left his dignity. He left his material possessions. He left everything, and he ends up on the backside of the desert where nobody knows who he is except his father-in-law who is making him work. Can you imagine that Moses just figured, nobody knows who I am. I don't even think God knows who I am. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever wondered if God has just forgotten who you are? But here's the personal nature of his call. Moses, Moses. Do me a favor, out loud, say your name twice. Eric, Eric. The Lord zeroing in. Personal nature of this God. Not forgotten. Isaiah 49. I'm reading you some uh, 
familiar verses, but it is good to rehearse things of the Lord. This is Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 13. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. I will not forget you. He knows your name. It's the personal nature of His calling. Third thing I notice here is what I'd call the place of His presence. The place of His presence. So He says, Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. At what moment did that dusty desert become holy ground? Anybody? It's when the Lord's presence showed up. The Lord's presence changes everything. And so suddenly, what was dirt, can you imagine how dirty Moses' feet were? We're talking dirty feet here. It would probably been at least a week and a half since he had a shower. I don't think they had showers back then. And, and the Lord says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. It doesn't give us any indication that Moses looked around and said, this? Have you ever driven in parts of the United States and you think, oh, this is what heaven looks like? And then have you ever driven in parts of the United States and went, oh gosh, this came with the fall. Something happened here that this is not nice at all. I think that might have been what the desert was like. He was looking around saying, there is no evidence of holiness in this place. But the Lord says, no, you're on, you're on holy ground. And the reason the Lord said that was because the presence of the Lord invaded the dust of the earth. Now, when the call of God comes upon our life, it, recall, it requires me that I discern the presence of God in the dust of life. You and I live in the dust of life. We live in neighborhoods. We go to schools. We go to jobs. We interact with people. We are exchanging life all the time in the natural realm. But did you know that there are moments when suddenly that natural realm translates into holy ground? And it's when the presence of the Lord invades that circumstance and suddenly you realize God is in this place and I did not know it. That's probably happened to you in conversation where you, you were talking to someone and then you had this prompting just to share a word with them and, and it just kind of came up out of your spirit and you shared that word with them and there was like, there was like a, a, a canopy of the glory of the Lord that just came. Have you ever been driving down the road and maybe you were listening to a worship song and suddenly it was not just a worship song, but it was the, it was the sound of angels singing and you, you sensed the Lord. That was the presence of the Lord invading the dust of life. And if you're called by God, and you are, it requires that you have the ability to discern that. Otherwise, you know what? You will plow through the dust of life just getting stuff done and getting through another day and oh, we made it through that week, made it that month, made it through that year, made it through COVID. We can just get through this thing and not realize that no, no, no. We're on holy ground. Church, you're on holy ground. 
And it's not this building. It's the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. It's the presence of the Lord in conversation with one other brother or sister in Christ. You know how when, uh, when Mary came into Elizabeth and the, and the baby in Elizabeth's womb uh, leapt and she was filled with the Spirit. I don't understand the theology of that, but it's in the book. That happened. It's like the, the presence of the Lord invaded that natural situation. Hallelujah. It's the place of His presence. You can look up that Scripture later. It's a good one. Let me also talk about the passion of His heart. The call of God involves that I know the passion of God's heart. I, I must be able to see what He sees and hear what He hears. Because these eyes fool me sometimes. How about yours? I look at things and I think I'm seeing the real thing and I'm not seeing the real thing at all. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And it takes the eyes of God to see the heart of a person instead of the exterior or the circumstances or the situation or where our nation is or whatever it is that I must know the passion of His heart. Lord, what are you seeing here? I would refer to this as the otherness of calling because it has to do with the reality of the call of God is not a badge that you get to wear around. It's not a piece of paper hanging on your wall. It's not a title. The call of God is all about somebody else through you. I mean... Who would consider themselves adequate to be called by God? No, but that's God's economy. He chose us. He chose you. He chose that person sitting next to you that you maybe want to second-guess God on and wonder, was he paying attention? Because I don't know if they actually should be called. Oh, yes, they are called by God. But we are called by God for somebody else. The Scripture tells us that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So measure yourself up there next to the Son of God. Jesus didn't come to be served. If anyone deserved to be served, it's the Creator God, our Lord and Savior. But that's not what He did. He came and He laid down His life. And the call of God is exactly that for us. It involves compassion for the hurting. In our text, okay, was Cindy the one who had the dream? Okay, Cindy, you had that dream because that's my message. Where did she go? She's back there taking care of the kids. Okay, well, tell her later it wasn't pizza. All right? It was the Lord. Because here's the call of God. It's exactly what her dream described, and that is that she looked around and there were some that were getting left behind, some that were dying, some that were not being helped while other stronger ones were moving forward. But the Lord says, I have heard the cry of my people, and I have seen their sorrows, and I have come down. Sometime when you have a little extra Bible study time, do a study on how many times the Lord responded to the cry of His people. It's amazing. And just like you and me, there were times where we didn't deserve for God to come and help us out one more time because He's done it so many times. And yet, God says, I have heard the cry of my people 
and I have seen their sorrows, their babies left behind, drowning in the mud. That's the heart of God. To know the passion of His heart means that I have a compassion for the hurting. Jesus said, I did not come to those who were healthy, I came to those who were sick. That can radically change your whole view of other people and how God values those. The broken, the set aside, the rejected, the unlovely in man's description and to see what God sees. He sees the hurting. In fact, it was characteristic of Jesus multiple times that it would say in the New Testament and seeing the people, he had compassion on them for he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Compassion for the hurting. Secondly, for the completion of His promise. In verse 8 of our text here, after the Lord says, I've seen their sorrows, then He says, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from that land and to a good and large land, to a land flowing in milk and honey. So what's the Lord saying? I am, I am um, on task right now to fulfill my promise. And the call of God causes us to understand the passion of His heart is to fulfill His promise. From eternity, every promise of God has already been fulfilled. But in time and space, they are still being fulfilled. How many of you have a promise from God that you've yet to see fulfilled? But you have a promise from God. Every one of us. There's a hope in our heart for something that we feel like the Lord said, seek me for this, pray for this, intercede for that one. And we haven't seen it happen, but listen, all of His works are finished from the foundation of the world. So that thing that you and I are believing for from God's perspective, stepping out of time and space, has already been done. For the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to preach. The completion of His promise. Let me just reference, and I'm hurrying, I know. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Power Company. Verse 24 and 25. Interesting verse. Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Interesting verse. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That does not mean that, um, that I need to um, drive nails in my hands and cut myself and beat myself. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about I am entering into an identification with my Savior whenever I serve you and it says fulfill the Word of God. Here's the call of God. It's about... Um, the passion of his heart, the completion of his promise. So you know what? You and I come alongside others for the purpose of helping them to see the fulfillment of the Word of God in their life. The promise of God. And when someone expresses a, 
a, a, a hope, a dream, a, a request that they're, they're asking God for, then I get to come alongside them. I get to come alongside and we get to walk together and we get to believe God together because the Bible says where two or three agree as touching anything, they have the petitions they've desired of you. And that's the otherness here of the call of God. God calls us to the other. Also, the confrontation of oppression. So, not only does God say, I've seen their sorrows, and not only does He say, I've come down so that I can see them make it to the land flowing with milk and honey, but it also says um, in verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. The confrontation of oppression is exactly what Jesus was reading from Isaiah in chapter Luke, uh, in, the, in the fourth chapter of Luke, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has anointed me. And then it lists the things that the anointing of the Holy Spirit does to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty those who are bruised, to relieve those, deliver those who are oppressed. This is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, is to confront oppression. How many knows that in our world today, there's a whole lot of people oppressed and they need to have that confronted i saw a meme yesterday or maybe it was last night where someone said if you don't believe in spiritual warfare then quick find someone who does and hide behind them <laughs> because that's a world we're living in the reality of spiritual warfare and it has people held captive and the called of God are sent to set the captives free. Hallelujah. To confront that oppression. I also heard someone say that, that what would Jesus do? Is that your question? Well, then making a whip and kicking over tables is part and parcel of that. Because there's a time to rise up, not in, not in fleshly anger, but to rise up in the courage and the boldness of the Holy Spirit and confront what Satan is doing to people. And set them free. Set your family free. I've told this story before. Uh, you may have heard it, maybe not. But I know that when we were uh, very young and our children were young and, and it was that season of life where where one kid gets an ear infection or, or sore throat or whatever, and about the time you get them done, the next kid gets it. And about the time you get them done, the next kid gets it. And by the time you get that one done, then mama gets it. And when mama's sick, that just breaks all the rules. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, we've already agreed. Susan can't get sick. That's just not going to happen because the whole thing grinds to a halt, right? So I, I know this was very early and we didn't know much about spirit-filled life and and uh, I had gone to church on a Sunday night because I'm so holy. And Susan was home with the sick kids. And uh, that was a joke there. You're supposed to, <laughs> supposed to laugh and nudge each other. Oh, he's joking now. Um, but I got the Word of the Lord. I have no idea what was preached that night, but I got the courage of the Lord up. And I went home and I said to Susan, do we have any oil? And she said, well, we've got Wesson oil. And I said, well, give me that Wesson oil. And it's one of those big jugs. You know what I'm talking about? So I just anointed the kids. And I anointed Susan. And I anointed the windows. And I anointed the doors. And I walked around the house. And I poured that oil all around the house. I wouldn't want to leave anything unoiled in my life. And I said, that's it. Sickness, you are done. You can't have my family anymore. In Jesus' name. That's not because I'm some kind of you know sheriff of faith. It's because something rose up in me that said, enough. 
I believe it's a confrontation of oppression. And I need to finish. By the way, in our text, and I don't have time to really deal with that, but the next few verses are when Moses begins to kind of argue. I call it the interlude of inadequacy. Well, who am I? And what am I going to say? And what's your name? And he's having this discussion with God, and it's just all about that he feels inadequate. Anybody ever felt inadequate? When it comes to the call of God, the enemy will always say, you are not adequate for that. And that's a lie from hell. God calls whom He calls. And He doesn't ask Satan's permission. Aren't you glad? I suspect He doesn't ask our permission either. But He calls us. He really does. And it brings us to finally the power of His calling. The power of His calling. And so, what's the Lord say? You go down there and you tell the people of God that the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the one that's sending you. I am am sending you. I am that I am. That, that statement there, I am, is the companion to the Hebrew statement uh, in chapter 11 where it says, and he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So I would say the power of His calling is in His eternal name, God of your fathers, and to all generations, His eternal name. Hallelujah. His name is not worn out. It's still powerful. Hallelujah. And Jesus gave us His name. In My name you will. Hallelujah. Not only in His eternal name, but in His eternal purpose. In His eternal purpose. I want to pray a few words of Paul's prayer over you as I complete this portion. And then we will move into the ordination. And this is in Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power? That's been the theme in our music today, in our lyrics. The might, the strength, the power of our God. Hallelujah. And the message, the hope of His calling. That God may give you eyes to see and open up your understanding the hope of your calling. Many of you probably already know what your calling is, but if you don't, here's my invitation. Seek the Lord because He's seeking you and partner with Him so that He can give you understanding of the hope of your calling. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah.